here in just a moment, you're going to get, you're going to be blessed this morning. You're going to be so thankful that you came uh, here in just a moment. Uh, Shane Stanford is going to come and bring a very powerful message. Shane has been in ministry for over 30 years as a pastor. He's written over a dozen books. Right now, he is leading the Moore West Center for Applied Theology, and we've been on a journey with Jesus for one year. And uh, we've been partnering with Shane and his team as we've been on this journey. I'm so thankful for them and the amazing gospel work that they are doing. And as we're finishing up uh, this time of going through this year-long journey every day with Jesus, Shane is going to come and bring an encouraging and inspiring message, not only from Acts 1, but also from uh, his own testimony in his life. So uh, I really encourage you to, to, to give him your undivided attention. Before he comes up, though, uh, if you don't mind, one more time, out of respect, could we stand for the reading of God's Word? It's going to be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering with many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing, while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before you sit down, would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Shane Stanford? Good morning, Frazier. It is so good to be here, and I want to take just a moment to say thank you to Chris. Uh, he is a wonderful friend and an incredible leader, and you have a real blessing in him. And I am um, not ashamed to say that. I tell people about him all over the place and uh, how things are going here at Frazier. Frazier plays an important part in my journey. Uh, in fact, in 1989, my fiance at the time, who's now my wife of 33 years, um, we were sitting about five rows back here because her grandfather and my grandfather both watched you guys on television in South Mississippi. And we were going to be over here. We came over with a pastor friend who happened to be my mentor. And I remember he told me out in the lobby, he says, when you preach it, Frazier, you've made it. So today I'm feeling pretty good about life. <laughs> He's not with us anymore, but he'd be real proud of all this. 
But we were sitting there, and, uh, and my grandfather, you have to understand, was very Baptist, very serious Baptist. But he would, he would listen to John Ed, and he'd say, you know what, he's a Methodist, but he's pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, we loved it, and at that moment, we knew that we were going to have a special connection with this church. Uh, at 25 and 24 years old, we planted a church, and we would bring our teams over to your Every Member in Ministry conference. And uh, several years we did that, and they still use some of the principles that they learned during those trips. I just want to say thank you for that. I also want to thank you because over the last year, we have been on a great journey together, whether you knew it or not. Um, What we started with in Life Along the Way, when Chris asked about it, I told him, I said, look, it's in a beta form, and we'd love for you guys to be a beta test, but please know that your feedback is important. Uh, In fact, I told, Chris asked me, he says, well, what's it going to cost for us to do this? I said, we'll pay the, the production and all of that, your price is you have to tell us the truth. And you guys did. In fact, one guy uh, back in February told me, he said, I hate those Bible studies. I was like, okay. (laughs) And we changed the Bible studies because of what he said, but we loved your feedback. And I'm happy to report that with our publishing partner, which is Whitaker House in Pittsburgh, um, we are putting out the four 90-day legs. The first one just came out a week ago. The Museum of the Bible, their new gospel exhibit will unveil in March, and at the end of that, you'll get information about life along the way when you come out of the gospel exhibit. And we also fly to Canada tomorrow because the longest-running television program in Canada, which is also the largest Christian media network they have in Canada, will be offering life along the way as their December uh, item, and so we'll be doing some vignettes. So you guys have helped formulate this process, and I know it's not easy being the beta people. Uh, that it's not easy because you don't always get, you know, to, to see what that looks like and what it becomes. And I would encourage you uh, to go back and do it again. Uh, we have the first volume available out there. And I think you'll see that uh, your work and your evaluations helped us so very much. And I just want to say thank you for that. The scripture today is a powerful scripture. It's also personal because uh, it was one of the chapters in my very first book called The Seven Next Words of Christ. There are, as you know, seven last words, seven words, last words we find on the cross, but we learned that there are seven next words, seven encounters after the resurrection when Jesus comes back, and as is the miracle of Holy Scripture, those seven next words, words correspond as almost answers to the seven last words on the cross. And the very last word is this Acts chapter 1. Now, it's powerful because Luke has just written the gospel telling Theophilus, and and you have to uh, hear some of the conversations that some of the New Testament scholars have about this, that he writes the first letter in very formal ways. So he writes the gospel to his friend Theophilus in a formal salutation. But when it comes to Acts, he puts in, O Theophilus. And I didn't realize that that's more of a familiar, more of a friendship salutation in the Greek. And therefore, something has changed between his discussion with Theophilus of the gospel and now the discussion of what happened after the resurrection. A great New Testament scholar that I was talking to about developing this entire program said, Shane, powerful things happen when you spend time with Jesus. And that's what Theophilus had had a chance to hear the story of Jesus. And what a powerful story it is. Uh, The story to me has mattered so much because of my own journey. 
Now, when you look at Acts 1, you don't really think much about some of the things that Jesus is saying, but he starts off by saying powerful things. You're going to have be baptized by the Holy Spirit. He preps them for what happens in Acts chapter 2. He also tells them, because a lot of the disciples are like me, they want to ask the questions, they want to know the answers, they want to get everything straight. And so they said, hey, are, are we going to have a redemption of Israel? And Jesus says, look, you, you don't need to know the whole story to be a witness for me. In fact, the whole story might complicate your witness. You have to learn to trust me, just like that last song we were singing. You have to learn to trust me. But then he offers this declarative statement. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And lots of folks like to focus on the, the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth part. And it is important because people will say that Jerusalem represents the people that you are in family with, that you do life with. Judea is your community. Samaria are the people who you maybe have uh, antagonism with or maybe you don't know and get along with. And then, of course, the end of the earth is everyone else. And I don't know if you're doing the math on that, but that means you will be my witnesses everywhere, from the places you sleep to the places you travel. You will be my witnesses. But I like to focus on the first part of that statement, the you and the will be and the my, because they are so important. And we oftentimes read past them quickly. You see, Jesus for you uses a very uh, particular type of case in the, in the, in the Greek. Uh, he would have said it in Aramaic, but it's translated into the Greek. Because the you, basically, in southernese, is all y'all. So he's saying all y'all, not just you or you, uh, Peter, or you, James, or you who followed me, but all y'all from this generation to the next who become believers, you will be, it's a declarative uh, case in the, in the Greek, and what's so amazing about it is it's not that you have a choice. If you're going to be with me, you will be my witness. And he declares that and he says, it doesn't matter where you go or what you do, you will be my witness. And I want you to think about this, friends, because sometimes we are not the best witnesses for the story of the faith that we claim. We see that many times. And you know what a witness is? I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. I was going to be a lawyer and God sidetracked me off into theology school and but my lawyer friends say a witness is simply someone who testifies to an experience and to an expectation. You will be, all y'all, will be my witness. You will testify. Now, I need to stop here and just let you know I am legally blind. Uh, I don't have a right eye. I lost that in a surgery a few years ago, and, and my left eye is going out. Now, if I don't put these in, you will simply fade away. And some of you may go, that may, that's great, Shane. You don't really need to see us. But I'm just going to assume that you're smiling back at me and you're happy and you're enjoying the, uh, the service. So we'll do it that way. But if I have to stop and do that, just be patient with me. I understood this passage, though, for, the, for really the best in my life a few years ago when I was on a trip in Mexico. Because the part of being my witness for me always was intertwined with my vocation. And as a pastor for 30 years, I became very, I think, good at being the pastor part, the vocation part, but sometimes I would miss what it meant to be the witness in the other aspects of my life. My story is not an easy one. I was born as a hemophiliac, and if you don't know what that is, it's a person who doesn't clot or heal well. Uh, I was mild, but I was also a bad boy. 
And so I would get in trouble and I would get hurt. And so today I still uh, suffer from injuries that I got when I was six, seven, eight years old. I just don't heal the way everybody else does. Most people worry about bleeding. It's really the healing that hemophiliacs struggle with. But at 16, my mother was very patient with me, a great mom, a great witness. I, she got me to 16. In fact, she told uh, the family the other day, she said, I was told he wouldn't live two years. He got to two. They said, well, don't think he's going to live much past 10. I got to 10. She said, I just kept betting the odds. <laughs> and got you to 16. I'd had eye surgery. I had an eye disease, too, called keratoconus and had to have corneal transplants, which was not easy on a hemophiliac who didn't heal. And so while we were there in the mid-1980s, they tested me for HIV and discovered I was positive. It was such a difficult time, though, to have HIV in those days. People's houses were being burned down in Florida. Ryan White, many of you know that name, couldn't go to school in Indiana. I'm six months older than Ryan would have been. And I've spoken on agendas with his mom, and she will remind me of that every time because she says Ryan would love what is happening now. But at 16, I was told, because you've had it for several years, probably had caught it through medicines used to treat my hemophilia back in the late 70s or early 80s, they said, you probably have three to four years before you develop full-blown AIDS. And so my wife and I, who were 19 at the time, and let me just tell you, I now have three daughters. I would never approve of getting married at 19. But God, God gave us a, a, a chance, and for 33 years, we've been married. And through medical procedures, I know some of you are going to ask, you have three daughters, how is that possible? We have went through a procedure the first time that kept them safe and her safe. And then we decided, you know, just like a crazy person, we'll do it two more times. And ended up with three of the most special blessings in my entire life. At 19, I discovered I was also hep C positive. And over the last few years of my life, it really has not been the diseases, but it's been the medicines of the diseases that have really devastated my body. Open heart surgery, they discovered I had a 99% blockage in the lower interior descending, which most people know is the widow maker. It's bad when you go to do a test, a cardio test, and they, and they tell you, we're not going to let you leave the hospital today. And so at 36, I have open heart surgery and was told we may not be able to control the bleeding. I went through a medical procedure to try to treat my liver disease at Mayo and in the 44th of a 48-week medicine regimen, which is equal to chemo, they discovered that the medicine was causing a bleed in my right eye and that's why I had to remove my right eye. And I, I like to tell people that I don't have a, a, I have a prosthetic eye because a few weeks ago I was at a church and there were some kids down at front and all of a sudden I heard one kid go, mommy, his left eye looked that way but this eye didn't move at all. And so I just like to prep people, you know, I'm going to have to put green stuff in my eye. My eyes may not move at the same time. I just want you to be ready for that. But you know, with all of the medical challenges that we've faced, and we've faced a lot, I, I, I forgot to count the number of times that people put a limit on what and how long my life would be. But I've had the blessing of, of a great life. I've had the blessing of great wife and great friends and God always angling the right people at the right time. I've had great medical care. So much of the people that I know who are in the HIV and AIDS community have not had the kind of medical care that I've had. In fact, of the 12 hemophiliacs who were in my region growing up, I'm the only one left alive today. The rest of them either died of HIV, AIDS, or they died of hep C. But all through this, I kept hearing this call in my life. 
And in spite of the struggles and in spite of all the difficulties, I kept hearing this call, Shane, I want you to be my witness. And I remember when the story would get difficult or the journey would get long, I would remember friends would be angled into my life who would say, you need to tell people what Jesus is doing in your life. You see, I believe Jesus is the hope of the world because first he was my hope and is my hope. I have no hope past him. I would not be here today if it were not for him. And so the story I tell, blessed and assured, is the story of Jesus. Several years ago, though, I was really struggling about some things that were going on in ministry. And, and of course, I've been involved with all of the th same conversations you've got been involved with. Uh, the church that I was pastoring, Christ Church in Memphis, disaffiliated like you guys did. And it was a long process, but I was looking for how to deal with some of the intersections that I was finding. And I would go deeply in prayer to God and I would fast and I would say, God, can you answer for me what I do next? I will tell you, I never expected the answer would be, you need to give up this amazing pastorate and try to start this center for applied theology. I was thinking, God, do you have anything else maybe that we could do? Any other direction? But I got that word in Mexico about nine years ago. And as we went to Mexico, we'd been going for about 10 years and working with the same church and we'd gotten to know the pastor and his wife and the family very well. And I would preach uh, every time we would go by, by an interpreter. And when I would get through, you know, they would have a long time of prayer and response. It's just amazing worship. But on this particular night, as I'd been pouring my heart out to God for the weeks before that about some direction, some way to move forward, some way that I could participate in helping to address the division and, and the antagonism that I was seeing in so many of our, of our people. The pastor's wife said, I want to pray for you. Now, Pastora, that was what we call her. She is very charismatic, comes from a Pentecostal background, loves to talk about the gifts of the spirit. And, and I know that speaking in tongues is one of her gifts. It was not one of my gifts. I grew up Baptist in a very traditional church. If you raised your hand, they thought you had a question. They didn't think you were praising God. And so I have gotten better at that. I'm more expressive in my, in my faith and worship experience. But Pastora is one that she was very expressive. And she says, I'm going to pray for you. And I knew that she was going to anoint me because she had this special bottle of oil that had come from uh, the, the Holy Land. And, and as she took the, the cap off, I noticed that her two sons, just two big guys, moved behind me. And the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, she's going to try to Benny Hinn me. You know Benny Hinn? I have no disrespect for him, but the one that touches you on the forehead and you go out, that is not Shane's testimony. And so I began, because I, I like for people to like me, and I began to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to embarrass her when I don't go out. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about how not to embarrass her, she touches me on the forehead, and this is not a pastor story, this is true, I went out completely went back. Uh, my youngest daughter was only about 10 at the time. She thought they had killed me. <laughs> but my wife and, and three daughters and 32 members of Christ Church were there to witness it. And I just completely went out and woke up sitting in a way that I can't physically sit, but I had no pain and no discomfort. And the only thing that I'd heard while I was out was one voice saying, it's about me. 
It's about me. Now, something else happened that night. Uh, while I was out, Pastora was praying over me, and she said, you will see the answer to your prayers and questions, and you will live to see the birth of your grandchildren. Three months ago, my grandson was born, and he is the smartest, beautiful, most beautiful baby in the world. And I have three daughters that I adore, but he's just smarter than they were, I'm just saying. And if they're watching, I'm sorry I said that in front of all these people. It's about me. And that rang in my heart for so many years, knowing the importance of what it meant to be on a journey with Jesus. I came back from Mexico, and that's the first time we put life along the way together. It was just scripture for the first time we ever did it at Christ Church. But what you went through was an expansion of it because it is about Jesus. You are his witnesses. In the places where you live, the place you do business, uh, the friendships you have, the church and community you're a part of, you're even going to be a witness when you're put in situations you don't like with people you don't respect. And even as you travel the world, you are his witness. You know what I love about it is, is that being his witness doesn't mean that you're trying to convince some, somebody of something. So many of us treat our faith as though we're trying to win a court case. He says, you just be the witness. You tell about your experience of what Jesus has done for you. The power of what that journey is is so important, I think, in our current world because one of the feedbacks that we got from you guys was that it unified you because you were hearing the same message together every day. You were hearing the same message uh, from the pulpit. It, it is a great bond of unity. Do you know how much we need unity today? But it doesn't surprise me. One of the books I wrote is called What the Prayers of Jesus Tell Us About the Heart of God. Do you know what Jesus prayed for more than anything else during his time on earth? Unity. Because he knows the danger of when the world comes apart and when we become our own worst enemy. It is about Jesus. The problem today, I think, is that so many of us feel like that we have to be right. I'm like that. I'm a type A. I used to, if you would get me in an argument, I would argue you until the end of the earth. Thank you. That was my wife over there shouting amen. <laughs> She's always sharing a witness. I love you, honey. But it wasn't the times when I won the argument that meant the most in my witness. It was usually the times when I didn't say anything at all. And people would come up or they had, maybe had seen something that I'd gone through. Maybe had heard my story. And they would write me and, and tell me, you know what? In spite of everything you've been through, I, I saw Jesus in you. One lady wrote that letter. She said, I saw Jesus in you. And I thought, then I'm doing my best. Right now in your communities, in your families, in your church, in your city, in the world, you get to play a part in what it means for us to be Jesus followers.
to not be, you know, and I love denominations. Everybody needs accountability and I love church organization. I, it was Christ church was a big church like you guys. And it took a lot of great people to do what you do. And by the way, you have the most amazing staff of any church I've ever seen. They are wonderful. They're good people. Y'all are starting to fade away. So let me put a few drops in. But we don't need more religious people in this world. We need more Jesus followers. We don't need more proclamations and more creeds. I think we say what we need to say and it's good. We need more Jesus followers. I believe he is the hope of the world because I've seen him as my hope through so many ups and downs of life. And so today I'm going to ask you, where are you in the journey of, with Jesus? Life along the way, where are you, W-A-Y? We ask the question every day in the devotionals, where are you? Because Jesus knows where he is. And we always are able to, to pick Jesus out in the times when we need him. But where are you in those moments when the world needs your witness for Jesus? Your spouse or your child or your parent, or your friend. Where are you? I learned this lesson to ask that question several years ago when the first church that I was sent to wouldn't take me. Um, they were scared of my HIV status. Uh, I was supposed to meet at the covenant meeting on a Tuesday night, on Sunday night. The Baptist and the Presbyterians and the Methodists all got together in the little town because they heard the HIV preacher was coming to town. And they got together and they all decided that we would not be welcome. In fact, one guy threatened to burn the parsonage down if we moved in. I decided I just didn't want to go there for that reason. <laughs> but my bishop made me go to the covenant meeting. And you know what he told me? I'm not going to send you there. Don't worry. But you need to go be a witness for the truth of Jesus. And I sat across from people that I still am in contact with today at that church. And they will say, you know what? We loved the fact that you could give us a witness that was different than the witness of our fears. And that's what Jesus is. You don't have to say a word, but your witness of his life in you is so different from anything else the world knows. And friends, the world needs to see that more than ever today. I ended up going to a little church that, or medium-sized church. I was named the associate pastor. They had nothing in the budget for to be associate pastor. One woman gave $40,000 to fund two years for me to be an associate pastor in the church. $20,000 a year. I thought I was the richest person on the planet at the time. And so thankful. But one of the things I asked them to do is I asked them to do an article on me and my health in the local newspaper because I didn't want to hide anymore. You see, I'd had to hide it. The reason I became a Methodist was because my mother said, you cannot tell your past, our pastor in the church where I was. And I just started dating this girl over here, and she was a Methodist. And I said, well, I'll go try the shallow water for a little bit. <laughs> and it stuck. Because I, I discovered you only need to get it on the top of the head. But the rest is fine. I'll immerse you. I'll immerse you, but you only need it on the top of the head. Thought I was going to law school. God detoured me into theology school. And I just wanted to find a place I could tell people about Jesus. But I was not going to hide anymore. 
Because I wanted to tell Jesus in the context of the truth of my life, good or bad. Got a knock on the door about six months into my first you know, job as associate pastor, and it was a man standing there with the article in the newspaper. He said, are you Shane? I said, I'm the one. And he said, well, you're my last chance to believe that God can love me. Tommy came into my life, uh, and we had very different stories. He had ended up living a very double life, um, had been married with children, but was living a very different life, and he had contracted AIDS through some uh, things that had happened, decisions that he had made. He had lost his job. His wife and children left him, wouldn't have anything to do with him. His own parents disowned him. And he ended up being absolutely, totally alone. The most alone person that I've ever known before or since. And he said, I don't have any place to go. I don't have any chance. I'm either going to, you're either going to convince me that God loves me or I'm going to kill myself. Now, I'm 24 at the time. And I am not a professional counselor. And so I kept praying, God, give me the right words with Tommy. Well, Tommy and I discovered that we had several things in common. Um, we both loved going to our grandparents when we were younger. My grandmother would, you know, I'd tell her I was cold and she'd put four blankets on me when she tucked me in at night. I don't know about, and she would do, and then she'd tuck me in like a mummy. And my grandmother would sing to me and she could not sing. But she'd sing to me Amazing Grace. Tommy's grandmother would do the same, put the blankets on, tuck him in, make him comfortable, and then she'd sing Jesus Loves Me. Tommy had a great voice. We got him into the choir. He began to sing. He, you know, people knew what was happening in his life, but they loved him anyway because that's what Jesus does. About a year into our friendship, I got a call that Tommy was in the hospital and they didn't think he was going to make it. And so again, I prayed, Lord, give me the right words, please. Help me say something profound or something that is for, for this moment. I, I, just help me do that. And when I got there, I was totally blank, overwhelmed that my friend was dying, seeing what could possibly be my fate in his life and in his circumstance too. The only people there were the doctors and the medical people. I was the only person non-medical that was with him. All, the, all of them left and it was just Tommy and me. And he was still responsive. He knew who I was, which I thought was a good thing. And I said, Tommy, are you okay? And this is all this is the last words he said to me. I'm cold. And at that moment, I knew what my witness had to be. Not words or knowledge or the right things that you can profoundly say. But I went and got the blankets. And I pulled them up over him. And I tucked him in like his grandmother would have. And I can't sing. But I started, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. For they are weak. But he is strong. You know the chorus? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. You have a song to sing. A witness to share. A story to tell. You will be his 
witnesses. In the places you know and in the places you don't. With the people you like and even with the people you may not like. You will be his witness. Tell your story. Sing your song boldly. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, I thank you so much for Fraser Church. I thank you for the impact of their life and for their impact around the world. I thank you for their pastor, Chris, and for his family. And I pray a hedge around this place, Father, as they move into a world that is so divided and so broken that they can be that source of light. Father, help us to be your witnesses in whatever ways you call us and whatever ways you angle us into the world. That when the time comes, we will simply tell them that it's about you. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for your love for me, your friendship, that you are my Lord and Savior. We boldly claim that today. And everyone agreed and said, Amen. Amen.